0: Welcome aboard. We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CB. Action. Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 112. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we're on the road. We are on the road right now in Florida. We're on our little handheld recorder on our way to Walt Disney World
1: yes we had a wedding in tampa yep so we were there for a little while we visited some family in west palm and now we are headed to disney i feel like we're on our very own yellow brick road
0: oh that's right because we are doing we're probably the trippiest movie we've ever reviewed on this show uh this is the review for Return to Oz.
1: Yes, listeners. Sorry, I'm not even close to sorry. Because after three Halloween Town sequels, this is where we would normally do our once a month Disney roulette. And I told Sean, no, I am picking the movie. We are doing my movie of choice. We are doing Return to Oz. Because it is admittedly one of my favorites. It has been a staple In my Disney rotation since my early childhood And I think it's pretty fitting for Halloween Because it has been both fascinating and terrifying me Ever since I was three years old
0: Yeah, that sounds about right
1: How about you? Had you seen this before I sat you down and made you watch it? Once
0: or twice You know, The Wizard of Oz was my grandmother's favorite movie We watched The Wizard of Oz a lot My father loves it This was just kind of something that I think we had picked up once at the video store um, and caught once on TV, but no, it wasn't really in our rotation.
1: For me, I would say it was this and Wizard of Oz in equal measure. People who have listened to the show for a long time will know that Wizard of Oz is my favorite. And the funny thing is that this Return to Oz came out the year before I was born. So when I started watching The Wizard of Oz my family just figured, great, give her more content. And they put this on having no idea what they were getting me into because, you know, they thought it was just another Oz movie. They didn't realize the turn, the dark turn that this one takes. Um, but with that said, yeah, it's, it's been a staple in my life for a really long time. The older I've gotten, the more I realize that it it is at cult classic status. Yeah. Um, I think I found that out back when we were working in radio and one of our managers who is like the biggest movie buff that you will ever meet in your life. Mr. Scott Benji, he had seen it. He had heard of it, and that's when I started to realize that this was a more well-known movie. It wasn't just something that I had enjoyed during my childhood that kind of got lost to time. And now I'm hoping with Disney Plus, more and more people are going to find it. And with that said, Dan Lanigan and Jason Henry, if you're listening, <laughs> yes. I beg you on bended knee. If you get a season two of Prop Culture, please, please do this one for me.
0: Yeah, um, I wouldn't even know where to start looking for props for this movie I would imagine they have to be very rare but if there's anybody that's going to track it down it's Dan Lanigan I I feel like you could almost do an entire season of prop culture just hunting down this one film
1: well yes and no because here's where this gets interesting as far as Disney's history and as it relates to The Wizard of Oz. So, Walt, who we know is a genius, uh, obviously recognized the popularity of The Wizard of Oz and he bought the rights to the books back in, I believe, 1954. So he had them while he was alive, but The Wizard of Oz is broken down into many different parts. So he got the rights to the first 11 stories and he started developing a television show but then he realized that it was just too big for television the budget was getting too big the production was just getting too big and they had to end up scrapping the project uh and then he bought he started to fear that another studio was going to beat him to the punch right so he bought that 12 story for almost as much as he paid for the first 11 i'm sure roy loved that Yeah, Especially as they're getting into television And then starting to build the parks at this point So the project got shelved for quite a while And then it came up again Because Disney was starting to shake their image In the 80s And they wanted to change things up From being known as the family company And they wanted to get into Different, more serious movies Which is why we got movies like This and The Black Cauldron
0: Right. Uh, It's such a dark turn for Disney, a different turn for Disney. And obviously they were trying to attract a more adult audience, a more teenage audience. And I guess that kind of makes sense because when you think about some of the movies that were coming out around this time as well, um, without jumping too much into a review of this film, when you look at some of the puppets and animatronics, very similar to things like The Dark Crystal and The NeverEnding Story. So it's not a surprise that Disney kind of leaned in that direction
1: themselves. And Labyrinth was also yes. a big one. And yeah. this was sort of their way of, of delving into that genre. And if you haven't seen it yet, maybe stop this episode and wait to listen. Go check out the movie because we're going to give it to you with all of the spoilers. So when we meet Dorothy again, we are now six months removed from her first trip to Oz via the tornado. As a result of that trip, Dorothy has been having trouble sleeping and she's talking about Oz nonstop. So naturally, Aunt Em and Uncle Henry are concerned and they want to take her to see a psychiatrist. This doctor in particular has a new way of treating patients with electroshock therapy. Yes, in a Disney movie. Uh, So Aunt Em makes the journey with Dorothy and she leaves her at the sanitarium overnight just as Dorothy is about to receive her treatment lightning strikes the facility and it loses power while the power is out a girl about Dorothy's age appears she unstraps her from the bed that she is tied to and helps her escape the facility they are chased down by the head nurse and the orderlies through a forest and they land at a river and have no choice but to jump in as a means to escape. Uh, so Dorothy loses her friend um, and she manages to find a crate and she floats away. When she wakes up she is awoken by Belina, who is a hen from the farm that she lives on and Belina is now talking to her and Dorothy realizes that the only place Belina could possibly talk would be Oz. Uh, so she picks up Alina and she carries her over the deadly desert, which was not a problem for her the first time she came to Oz because she flew in via tornado. Now she has to skip on stones because if she hits the sand, she is going to be turned to sand. Um, so she makes it through the desert, uh, and she wants to find the scarecrow and find out what has been going on in Oz because she feels, she's felt like there's trouble. Dorothy finds her old house, the one that landed on the Wicked Witch of the East, and then she sees a now decrepit yellow brick road and she realizes that something must be wrong. So she runs into the Emerald City where she finds that all of the occupants have been turned to stone, uh, including the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, and then she is attacked by the scariest things that you will ever see in your life, the wheelers. Dorothy and Belina run away and hide in a crypt-like room where they find TikTok, who is the Royal Army of Oz. TikTok helps Dorothy escape all but one wheeler who tells them that the only person who can help them find the scarecrow is Princess Mambi, and she will know what happened to him. So they go to Mambi's palace uh, where they learn that Mombi has taken all of the heads from the people that were turned to stone and is now changing them out like most people would change their underwear. She wants to take Dorothy's head for her collection and decides to throw her in the tower until she is ripe. Her words, not yours. Correct. In the tower, she meets Jack Pumpkinhead, who is a creation of Mombi's, and they devise a plan to escape, which involves Dorothy going down past Mombi's headless sleeping body into the cabinet with her original head and stealing the power of life. And in doing so, she wakes Mombi up. She has to outrun her headless body and she makes it back up to the tower where TikTok and Jack have built. How do
0: you explain this?
1: <laughs> it's, it's the Gump. It's a head of a moose who is attached to a sofa, and they have given it wings of palm leaves. And the Gump learns to fly on the fly as they escape the tower. Uh, so the Gump safely flies them over the deadly desert as Mombi and the wheelers are chasing them down. And they head towards the Gnome King's mountain. Uh, the Gnome King has taken over... He has captured the Scarecrow and he has been using his minions, aka rocks, to spy on Dorothy this entire time and they have been reporting back to him and they seem to be very concerned about the chicken traveling in her party Uh, so the Gnome King sucks them down his mountain into his cave where Dorothy is very briefly reunited with the Scarecrow and then he disappears. The Gnome King explains that he has turned the Scarecrow into an ornament and Dorothy and her friends can take a risk to get him back. They quickly learn that the risk involves three guesses by touching the ornaments to see if they guess correctly and if they don't they themselves are turned into an ornament. So. The Gump, followed by Jack, followed by TikTok, and lastly, Dorothy, go into his room of terrors. And they
0: essentially what it is. They
1: play their guessing game, and everybody has lost, and it's down to Dorothy's last guess. And... She finds an ornament at random and thankfully brings back the scarecrow. They realize that he was a green ornament and they start looking for green ornaments, assuming that that is what all of the people from Oz were turned into. So they save the Gump. They save Jack. And then the Gnome King decides that he does not want to play anymore. Uh, So he starts to eat them. Uh, When he goes to pick up Jack, Belina has been hiding in Jack's hollowed head and she lays an egg which drops out into the Gnome King's mouth, and we learn that eggs are poison. So he basically self-implodes, and Dorothy takes the ruby slippers, which have been in his possession since she last left Oz, and wishes everyone to safety. Uh, So not only do her and her friends escape, but all of the people from Oz are turned back from stone into... They're Ozian selves and they throw a party in Dorothy's honor. They want her to become the Queen of Oz, but they realize that that title is already taken by Ozma, whose father was the king of Oz before the wizard dropped in. So we get a little bit of backstory there. And Dorothy wishes that she could stay in Oz, but she realizes that she has to go home, and Ozma promises that she will check in on Dorothy from time to time and bring her back if she wants. So that is Return to Oz, which on paper sounds a little bit trippy, but I think what really puts it most over the top are the visuals. Yeah.
0: Admittedly, I had to do a little bit of research because I thought to myself, half of these characters could not have possibly existed in a story that was written at the turn of the century. And if they were, certainly they didn't look quite that terrifying and name, I was wrong <laughs> on both so I don't know what was in L. L. Frank Baum th- That is the author's name Correct. What was in his head, I don't know It's a scary place But um, yeah, I can certainly see where Disney thought This was a good place to go In their shift in character in the mid-1980s <laughs>
1: Well, besides the strong visuals, I think... Let's just address the elephant in the room. I think the biggest change and the biggest, you know, the most striking visual is how young Dorothy is out of the gate. Yeah, I found this a little distracting. I did too, even in my very young age watching this movie. It's something that has always bothered me. I could never really understand why in a sequel you would make... Dorothy so visibly so much visibly younger than she was obviously at the end of the original film. So I kind of wish that they didn't market this as a sequel and it just would have been another adaptation especially because one of the other things that they ran into was that MGM still owned the rights even though Disney had the rights to the books MGM still owned a lot of the rights to things like the Ruby slippers which is why once upon a time you could go to Disney's MGM studios and see them in the great movie ride May it rest in peace but that's why we don't see the Ruby slippers until the very end of this one because they couldn't use them
0: and I think that's... I mean they
1: did they eventually acquired it but they couldn't they couldn't play as big a role as they did and in the books they were silver slippers not Ruby that was a touch that MGM put on it
0: which I think makes sense. I mean, especially if talking about this movie, it was uh, one of the... I think it was, it was the first color film. Um, so, yeah, Silver would not show up quite as breathtakingly as Ruby would. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think it also makes sense as to why the images that you see in terms of the characters that you are familiar with why they are so strikingly different here. Again, closer to the actual source material, but that's probably because I'm sure MGM owned their likeness as well.
1: Exactly. But yeah, I wish at that rate we would have just done the complete departure and this would have been its own separate entity. Uh, Because along with Dorothy being obviously younger, it also changes the relationship to Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. Because they're you know, the kindly older couple who try to save Toto. And now, they think that she's losing her mind. And and they're going to take her to get shock
0: therapy. To get electrocuted. (laughs) Yeah, they. I mean, you feel bad for them, obviously, um, but it seems more in this film like they are just completely out of touch with a child that they have recently taken in for reasons unknown.
1: Well, I think... They do a good job of setting up that context as far as the tornado has wrecked the house and the farm, and now they've fallen on really hard times. They're clearly having financial troubles. And it's subtle, but Aunt Em does address that Dorothy's not sleeping well, and now she's no no help to her the next day. Right. Because she's too tired to do anything. So I think... They made it work in that regard, and I think Dorothy being younger does play well as far as that storyline goes.
0: Yeah, I think if uh, Dorothy would have been, say, 15, 16 years old, as I think she was portrayed, I think that was about the age in the original film, the MGM film, she would have had the wherewithal to take a power nap and just get back to work. Something that a girl... Because, I mean, Dorothy in this movie is 8 years old. I mean, 8, 9 years old. I mean, she literally is a child and would not possess the skill set to just take a quick nap and get back to work.
1: I also think it serves, as far as the setup too, you know, they're really hitting home that this is all in her head where, you know, in the original MGM version, we've realized that Dorothy wakes up and she's surrounded by everyone and everyone that she knew in her actual life, we saw in Oz somewhere. And, you know, there was kind of always that ambiguous ending of whether or not it was a dream, but you believed that, she, you know, because she said there's no place like home, you believe that she really went there. Now... We're treating her as though, okay, it's official, you're making everything up. And I think it's much easier to dismiss a child talking about a place that doesn't exist versus a 16-year-old who got hit on the head.
0: Yeah, I think if you you had a 16-year-old telling you about the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man that spoke to me, it would come off a little silly.
1: Yes. So, good setup in that regard, but really bad move something that has never sat well with me is that when aunt em takes dorothy to the doctor total chases them down and then they straight up leave him in the middle of a field
0: yeah and and em says he'll be fine and it basically says it just like that he'll be
1: fine yeah in the middle of tornado alley he'll be fine yeah great thank and then you they keep
0: and then they just keep going
1: that will never sit well with me no matter how many times i see this So once they get to the sanatorium, uh, this is where we take the really creepy, trippy turn. It's a storm. Okay, fine. It's going to get a little spooky. There's thunder. There's lightning. But what amazes me about how they shot this is all of these twisting hallways that they're running through like that Oh, to this day it makes me feel claustrophobic I think they did such an amazing job of putting us in Dorothy's point of view as she's trying to escape
0: yeah it's very rough scenery um but it makes sense I I think it makes sense for the setting that they're trying to uh give you for the reaction that they are trying to invoke in you um It's dressed beautifully. Um, It it looks as good... You know what? It looks better than most haunted houses that you see in a horror movie that try to be scary and are unintentionally very funny. Um, In this case, it really leaves you with the heebie-jeebies because the fact of the matter is, I don't think they had to dress this set very much. I think they found a, a great building to use. Uh, and I could be wrong about this. They could have built this from the ground up on a soundstage. However it is that they did it, it just looks authentic. Not just for the tone that you're trying to set, but it looks authentic for the time.
1: I definitely agree with you, uh, except on the actual setting. Uh, most of this was on a soundstage. Well, inc- bravo. Including the river that they jump into. Oh, that that's great. That was all fabricated. Yeah. Um, the actress that played, plays Dorothy Feruza Balk, which you'll probably know her more from The Craft and The Water Boy, uh, she did pretty much everything herself. So, I mean, obviously, the the river had to be a more controlled environment, but that was all done on the soundstage. I think they shot most of this in England, I believe. And for as well done as these sets are, that did get them into trouble with production quite a few times because not only did this film go over budget the director Walter Murch was also taking too long to shoot Uh, so aside from production just being so expensive he's now running the clock and he's not going to get the shoot done on time. He actually got fired but then his good buddies George Lucas and Steven Spielberg Talked to the studio and got him his job back.
0: That's an unbelievable story. You've heard of directors getting fired mid-production. It just happened on Solo, and then they brought Ron Howard in. But you fire a guy in the middle of a project because he's taking too long. Now you're just gonna you're gonna stretch it out even further because now you've got to find a replacement only to bring him back because two other guys beg you to. How? Is that not the most awkward set of all time?
1: Not to mention... That's like one of the most Hollywood things of all time. Yeah. So, $27 million later... Oh my god. Yeah. This movie gets done. Um, yeah, what, what amazes me, though, is that they bothered to spend that much money. And once she gets to Oz... To me, it's heart-wrenching every single time to see... I mean, we've seen the destroyed house. We've seen it land on the Wicked Witch of the East. Okay, that's not a big deal. Uh, But it's devastating to me to see the broken yellow brick road. Yeah. Unless, of course, those bricks still exist. And Dan Lanigan, I want you to find them. Because I would love one. To me, I can't believe that they didn't bother to do the broken down Munchkin Land set. Because that's where the house lands. You know, and I think part of that was, you know, MGM trying to flex their muscle with the Technicolor because she steps out. It's no longer black and white. They wanted a very vibrant set. But that would have, to me, made it even harder to watch to see Munchkinland disheveled.
0: Yeah, because it looks like the house is basically just sitting in the middle of the woods. Um, Right completely different setting. You know, we talked when we talked about the um, the uh, sets for Halloween Town and how the town square kept changing, that's kind of distracting because you know it as being one thing, then you see it as something completely different, and they do the same thing here, but it would make more sense in this case if MGM is trying to run blocker on everything that Disney is trying to do.
1: Please don't ever compare my movie to Halloween Town.
0: You know what I'm talking about.
1: Um... Another thing that's kind of jarring is that once she realizes the Yellow Brick Road is broken down, it seems like she runs, what, five minutes and is think... in Emerald City, if even that?
0: I don't even think it was that long.
1: That bothers me a lot because this was a whole journey.
0: Yeah. It's, it was,
1: it's the whole movie, and then you gather the Scarecrow, the Tin Man Lion yeah, as you, you made, go. You meet three main characters and get attacked multiple times by the <laughs> Wicked Witch of the West. You get apples thrown at you.
0: And then somehow she just... I don't know. Maybe she knows the shortcut now because of that very long journey she took in the first film.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I I get it. You can't drag it on that much. You're not going to have her retrace every single step. But I would have liked to see it drag out a little bit more, like I said, either, you know... Show us what Munchkin Land looks like. Show us the Tin Woodsman's house because that's where she finds him. Just show us something else we're familiar with because it is a really great setup for once we get to the Emerald City and it's like running into a wall because you have something, you have the Yellow Brick Road which is familiar and you know things are going to be turned on their head but you're really not expecting to see the Emerald City in this state.
0: It is completely disheveled. Buildings are crumbling. Buildings have already crumbled, and uh, it is it is completely jarring because I think the thing with the original Wizard of Oz is that to this day, no matter how old it gets, it is such a beloved film for a multitude of reasons that we don't have the time to get into. So to see this imagery really does darken the film. Very, very quickly, and this is where the movie really takes a tonal shift.
1: And it also really starts picking up because you're sad to see the Emerald City this way, and then it's really starting to pack the creepy punch with all of these stone figures, and then you get the Wheelers.
0: <laughs> the Wheelers. Oh, where do we even start with the Wheelers?
1: They still haunt my nightmares. I mean, like I said, I was watching this movie from the time that I was three years old. And one of the most vivid memories that I have is watching it at my grandparents' house because they were the ones who initially introduced me to the Wizard of Oz and they put this in the VCR, thinking, great, more wizard for her. Uh, Not knowing that this was coming. And as, as terrified as I was of it, I kept asking to watch it over and over. Like, I never owned a copy of it, but I would always ask for them to rent it. But once we got to this scene, I would scream for my grandmother, and she would have to come and fast forward for me because I I couldn't deal with it. They were terrifying.
0: And they look even scarier in the books, in the illustration in the books. These wheelers are even more horrifying than they are in the movie because they have like this old... Do I want to call it a clown? They kind of have a bit of a Pennywise look to them. But the way that Pennywise has been designed in the new IT films... That's kind of what they look like with crazy hair on wheels. Again, I don't know what was going on in Bomb's mind, but I'm terrified to know what that man went through in his life.
1: No, and you know what's funny? People are probably going to think I'm crazy now that I'm so scared of them because I honestly, th- and this is how many times I have seen this movie, I honestly think that they gave the saturation a boost for Disney Plus because I remember this film as being so much more washed out and the wheelers looking so much more gray with just a slight iridescent shading where there was color.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, I feel like there's pops of color. And, you know, when you do look, the costuming, which we are going to talk about, the costuming is amazing on them. It was something I certainly never appreciated as a child as I I watched through my closed hands. Right. But... Um, I really think that they gave it a little bit of a boost and I'm they look a lot cooler now yeah I think so with the added color speaking of things that both fascinated and terrified me let's talk about the next scene which is Mombi.
0: Dorothy Gale oh that's not
1: nice <laughs> that is not nice
0: that's another good story which you have to tell now
1: I do and thank you for using that against me you're welcome um yeah, I I was... Once once you come off...
0: I don't understand why you loved this movie so much. I don't either. I don't either. This is irrational.
1: Well, I think because it was Oz, I was predisposed to love it. But yeah, once I came down off of the adrenaline from the Wheeler scene, you get to Momby and the the set is absolutely amazing. Which, again, we're, we'll put a pin in and we'll talk about that later. Uh... I wasn't so much scared of the heads. That didn't bother me. But what bothers me is when Dorothy breaks in and steals the powder of life, and she screams her name out. I was so scared of that scene when I was misbehaving. My mother used to threaten me with the mambi voice, as she called it. And I would snap to real quick.
0: Brilliant brilliant. I only learned this a couple of years ago. I wish I had known this for a lot longer.
1: <laughs> I mean I'll give it to her now that is pretty brilliant parenting but my gosh that was mean and she when I tell you my mother nailed this she really did.
0: Yeah but she only did it if you really deserved it. I mean, She didn't do it for her own entertainment.
1: Well she would threaten it quite a bit but there were one or two times where she actually delivered and I would just scream and cry. Brilliant. It's brilliant parenting. <laughs> What I should mention, though, as terrified as I was, it wasn't lost on me that Mambi is also the same actress as the head nurse at the sanatorium. Um, You know, obviously that's not something that was done by coincidence. This is where this film really starts to parallel the original Wizard of Oz in that everyone in Oz was somebody in Dorothy's real life. So you had the head nurse come back into play here as Mambi and then you also had the doctor come into play as the Gnome King. What I really like about the Gnome King is his descent into, or, or I should say ascent, to becoming more and more human. Because when they first plant him, all you see is The rocks that are reporting back to him. But the way that the rocks are are sort of looking up and then they cower when he finds out that there's a chicken with Dorothy, you get the impression that the Gnome King is very big. And whether that's in stature or in power, you know he's going to be a very foreboding person from the jump.
0: Yeah, I think the Gnome King, in terms of... Here's the thing, in terms of villains in the Disney canon he's underappreciated but I won't so much say that he is underrated because he has very little screen time in this movie and very little that he does is that diabolical but when he is present and when he does do this guessing game with them I really like how he toys with them. I feel like Instead of focusing on Mambi so much, I wish they would have spent more time with the Gnome King because I think it would have made for an all-around better story and a more exciting movie if it would have had this really strong villain the entire time.
1: Right. Especially because as he does become more and more human, he's also becoming more and more eccentric. Yeah. Like... When he reveals the intent of the game, you know, he he says that they're playing a guessing game at first, and then it's after the first flash, when the gump disappears, he's like, oh, by the way, if you guess wrong, you're going to be held captive. And then later he reveals that he's had the ruby slippers the entire time, and he's been wearing them. So you do get to see him become increasingly quirky the more time we spend, but you're right. It's not enough time. You kind of want to see what else he's going to do. Speaking of his guessing game, what do you make of that? I love it. I love how diabolical
0: it is that, you know, he takes advantage of the fact that they weren't smart enough to ask about the rules or the terms in which they were going to play his game, because that's what it is. It's his game. he could And he could just as easily have turned them into ornaments himself, and he does go on to tell Mombi that he could have done that, but he said it's more fun this way. This is where I wish
1: we would have had more of him throughout the movie. Right. He almost reminds me of a Negan from Walking Dead in that way, because, you know, when you find out about Lucille and what it is and what it's used for you're like that that's so horrifying and so terrible but then when you get to know this character you're like well yeah of course you would do that because you're terrifying and horrible and with the gnome king i kind of feel the same way is that this game is so random and there's such high stakes but once you get to know him a little bit it's like yeah of course you would do something like this and of course you just want them for your collection so as odd as that is that works for me but I kind of feel like he doesn't get his comeuppance because this game is horrible and we see he's diabolical, but you're taken out by an egg? Really?
0: I never really liked or understood the whole notion behind, now I don't know, in folklore, are gnomes allergic to chickens? I don't know. I've never really delved into the backstory of David the Gnome that much to know, <laughs> if can kill David. Um, so it just seemed like a really bizarre plot point. I guess Baum wrote it into the book. I mean, I don't have to repeat myself at this point in saying that Baum was a weird guy. Um, but yeah, this this kind of falls flat for me. Because Dorothy does nothing to defeat this guy
1: exactly I mean they do a good enough job of setting it up because they planted early on in the movie that Belina is not laying eggs and Dorothy even says if you don't start Aunt Em is going to cook you for dinner um so you kind of just write it off as a throwaway and then once she gets to Oz you know that they're freaking out that there's a chick in there uh but even though they build up to it, I just kind of feel like this is one of those instances as far as the villain goes where it's like the bigger they are, the harder they fall. But this is what took you out, really. And especially because the way that, that his entire kingdom is crumbling around him, it, it just, it was weak.
0: Yeah, it's a lame way to go.
1: The other thing that I don't love, if I'm being perfectly honest, is the ending. Like you said, aside from Dorothy not taking out the villain, she doesn't get crowned the queen, which I think would have been more fitting for the Judy Garland era Dorothy and not an eight year old kid. But I also never really understood. I mean, I know Ozma is in the books, but I kind of feel like she took something away from Dorothy.
0: I think if they're trying to stay true to the source material, then they did what they had to do. I think you're right. If the if the age difference had not been so extreme, her becoming the Queen of Oz and sitting as Queen to the Scarecrow, it would have worked. But having an actress that young... It would have been a very uncomfortable ending, having her sit as queen to the scarecrow. So I guess for me personally, the ending doesn't offend me quite as much as it riles you up.
1: I guess I just feel like Dorothy was sort of robbed of something. And I feel like it's anticlimactic. Oh, it's totally
0: anticlimactic. It's like, okay, thanks, go home.
1: Exactly. Especially because... In the original, Dorothy always wanted bigger. She wanted her somewhere over the rainbow, and that's the whole thing, right? Is that she she learns that she needs to find happiness within herself, and she had to choose to go home. Here, she still clearly feels torn. Belina decides that she's going to stay where chickens have pretty much been outlawed because of the Gnome King, although he's gone, so I guess she doesn't have to worry. Uh, but then she's just kind of sent back herself and then that's it. And they're like, all right, well, we'll drop in from you. We'll drop in on you from time to time. And then when Ozma does drop in on her, nothing really happens.
0: She waves at her through a mirror.
1: And I mean, maybe that's because they knew at that point they weren't going to do a sequel. They, that's where you would set up the sequel is like, all right, hey, we need you back for something. And you know, there are a million Oz stories. There's, I mean, the book is, is very long in all of its parts, but they've done a million adaptations of it. I mean, there was another animated version called Journey Back to Oz, um, where they had a bunch of, uh, a bunch of name talent voicing the big roles, um, you know, it was the Scarecrow Tin Man and Lion and uh Danny Thomas was one of them. Ethel Merman was the witch. Uh and they did have Mombi in that one, but it was just a completely different story. Then Disney later on did against all better judgment, Oz the Great and Powerful. Um so there you know, there were a lot of things that they could set up here, but I'm guessing that had to do with for budgetary reasons because they sunk so much into this movie and it ended up not being well received at first. Right. I guess they weren't, they certainly weren't banking on a sequel at the time. Um, let's talk about some of the characters because, you know, as I said, there's a lot of iterations of Oz and we got to meet a couple of new characters in this one, but I do want to start with the characters that we already know. You know, we talked about, Dorothy obviously being different because she's much younger. um, I think Farooza Balk did a phenomenal job with her. Um, I think a lot of that is just because of the way she looks. She's got those gorgeous blue eyes and they're very expressive. Um, But I think that for such a young actress, she was able to emote quite a bit. And I think that's what gives Dorothy... Uh, You know, the, the way that once upon a time we all fell in love with Judy Garland, I think even though this is obviously a different actress, I think she did enough with Dorothy where we love her in her own right here. This is one of the
0: few times that I have watched a child actress or actor because, I mean, she's very much a child in this movie. And I thought to myself, my God, she's actually acting. Because sometimes, and nothing against them, but you get these child actors and actresses who kind of just read the script, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and of course, they're, they're acting, but sometimes it's more just acting out what's on a piece of paper, which, okay, somebody's going to say, hey, dummy, that's the definition of acting. But with Feruza Balk, there are times when she finds the Yellow Brick Road, and she emotes like Judy Garland. You know, it's like, but you could tell that she was trying to sound like her when she gets expressive. More specifically, when she gets worked up and when she gets upset, she sounds like Judy Garland sounded in the first movie. And I really was taken aback by how good she was nailing that
1: she really did and I mean I'll be the most critical person of it but what I appreciate is that she toned it down a bit to make it appropriate for the time period because when Judy Garland talks like this over the top that was a mark of old Hollywood and she gave it that vocal without over dramatizing it
0: yeah because then it comes off like a spoof
1: and I think I will say this too uh, I love Farouza Balkir. I think she's much better here than she is in The Craft. The Craft, she's just like screaming her head off. And I love The Craft. I do, but I think I don't think that that showcases her talent properly. No. And certainly not the Water Boy. Oh, she's perfectly talented in the Water
0: Boy.
1: <laughs> um, other familiar characters, even though they don't have a lot of screen screen time. Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion. Um, I go back and forth with them a lot. Because as you said, you know, the visuals here stick true to the books. Um, I think a lot of the reason, like we said before, is because MGM has the rights to the aesthetic of these characters. So you couldn't necessarily do them the same way. But... I wish that we still had done full face makeup on a person instead of having a robotic tin man, an animatronic lion, and to me the most egregious of all. The Scarecrow looks exactly as he is drawn in the book, but what I hate is that he doesn't move. The face is just plastered on. It's that clown-like grin. There's not much of a difference between him and Jack Pumpkinhead in the way that they're just stuck in that one expression. Even if they had done, you know, just a couple of different masks and they changed them out, much like they did Jack Skellington, where he's got so many different expressions and different heads, that would have been more effective. But here, especially once he starts to get the speaking lines, like one, when they're in the um, in the ornament collection, and he's like, here, touch it, Dorothy. But he's just... Got like the stare. The, yeah. It, it completely takes me out of it at that moment.
0: Yeah, it looks like they just took, like, uh, the plush toy that they had ready for the Toys R Us line, and they stuck it in the movie.
1: Right. And, I mean, you're never going to be able to recreate Ray Boulder's performance, but I just wish that we had gotten to see a person emote through makeup instead of a burlap sack. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the new characters. All right, I love TikTok. Uh, I love the aesthetic, I love the purpose that he has in this film. I love the voice, and I what I love more than anything else is how he so often is synced up to the score with his. The, with his movement and the stomping I think it's amazing
0: My favorite thing about him is how literal he is Because he is not a human He does not have feelings He is a machine So he is incredibly literal And he doesn't care how blunt he is TikTok is my spirit animal
1: <laughs> No, and not in a way that's so different from uh, from Guardians yes It's, you know, it's, it is supposed to be that same type of comic relief, but it's, it's much more stoic and comes off much more sarcastic. What I really love is, um, you know, he's, he's got the three, the three, uh, actions that you can wind up his brain, his, his speaking and his action. And there is one point where the brain runs down and he's still talking. And I love that they kind of make a nod to the original version of The Wizard of Oz where the Scarecrow says some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. Yes. Uh, so I love that that comes full circle here. Um, yeah, and I just think he's great. And and the the, the way that they pulled it off is amazing. Because I could, I could never figure out. I was like, is that an animatronic? Is it a man in a suit? It's a little bit of both. His upper half is... Uh, robotic, and they actually had a performer crouch down in his round body to get the leg movements.
0: Yeah, he is one of the cooler props that I think we've seen in any film that we have reviewed on the show thus far.
1: Yeah, and and really, until I started looking, it's for as much as I love this movie, I didn't really know too much about the production before. You know, we. We went to get everything together to do the show. Uh, So that was really interesting to learn. Um, Same with Jack. Um, Sometimes I find him annoying with calling Dorothy mom, but that doesn't even really matter to me just because he's so amazing with the movement. And that is all because of Brian Henson.
0: I think the movements are fine, but I don't like the headpiece because... You said don't bring Halloween Town into uh, Return to Oz. There and are. Yet,
1: t- here you are again. Yep.
0: There are times that you have criticized the Pumpkinhead people of Halloween Town because they look like a mask on a person. There are a lot of times, nay, I, I will say most of the time, that is what Jack Pumpkinhead is. Sometimes the head moves, sometimes it doesn't. The mouth doesn't move, it's completely stagnant. So, yes, the constantly calling Dorothy mom is completely off-putting. I don't care for it, nor do I understand it. The physical actions are great. So basically, it's from the shoulders down, he's lovely. But the headpiece just does not do it for me at all.
1: I can live with it more, that that stagnant grin on him, than I can with the Scarecrow. Because he's a jack-o'-lantern, so I don't expect him to move that much. But at the same time, they did give him life. So, you should at least, you know, do I expect him to blink? No. But maybe get the mouth flapping a little bit.
0: They took a moose head, slapped it onto (laughs) a couch, and made it fly. They certainly could have made... Jack's mouth move and perhaps this is where the budget cuts start to show
1: right because the Gump was full on animatronic everything about him Uh, that's an incredibly amazing set piece and an incredible character I love the Gump I mean yeah he's kind of he's kind of an Eeyore and I don't say that because they're almost of the same species Um, but just his his woe is me attitude
0: His general demeanor.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny, but I love the gump. I think he's great.
0: I think the gump is good. I think he works as good comic relief here because TikTok is funny. Um, I don't think pumpkin head is at all. So I think you needed something that would be funny for the children. You know, a kid watching the movie, a kid watching the movie is not going to find how literal TikTok is as, comical. You know, they're not going to laugh at it the way an adult will. So you needed something softer like The Gump, and I think it does work here. I want to talk about the sets, because when you think about the original Wizard of Oz, what stands out to you the most is seeing those bright, beautiful sets from Munchkin Land all the way to the Emerald City. And I have to say that I think the biggest success of this film similar to the first one, are the sets.
1: I agree. And I think that that is part of what made me love it so much. I mean, obviously, like I said, I was predisposed to love it because I loved The Wizard of Oz. But what I've come to realize now, and I'm probably going to catch a lot of flack for this, but I don't care. For me, this was like my Star Wars Not, And I'm not talking about the original Wizard of Oz. I'm talking about this one. I think this is why I was so fascinated by it, was because of the sets, the fantastical sets and the characters. Because it totally transported me to another world. And like Star Wars, it does have that blend of the animatronic characters with people and these just larger than life sets. And I think I'm surprised that Star Wars didn't get me earlier because of something like this.
0: The amazing thing about this set all of them is that they can be beautiful they can be scary they can be happy they can be sad. It's it's rare that you find a set that acts As if it is another character moving the story forward. And I think that's what happens in this movie. I can't speak enough about how great I think these sets truly are. All of them.
1: All of them. Especially Mombi's palace. Because they use it in the first scene where they meet her. And then at the end when they do the parade. How on earth, and, and why on earth, would you choose to film with so many mirrors? To me, that, that's just beyond logic, and that's probably the reason they started getting tripped up with these long production days, because you have to be so aware of where you're catching a reflection of the camera. It, From a production standpoint, it doesn't make sen- Make any sense, and it's, it's just a straight-up bad idea, but it looks absolutely amazing. Um, to your point, though, I love what you said about the, the sets taking on... So much emotion I feel like a lot of that has to do with the score Because The score is great The music is similar Like you do hear the same song twice Once in the beginning when she first gets there Like when she's under the lunch pail tree It is that same music as her parade at the end But it's two totally different tones
0: Yeah, I think the score is absolutely brilliant here. I love everything about it. Um, And uh, similar to the sets, I can't say enough about it, so I'm not going to sit here and continue to repeat myself over and over again. I will spare you all this time at least.
1: I agree. The score is by David Shire, and I think that's what puts a lot of this over the top. It's... You know, what, what really brings us back to Oz, it sort of makes it feel familiar, but it's also what makes it feel creepy, too. And I think yeah. that's what, what gives the movie that, that really trippy, campy vibe. The costumes do as well.
0: Yeah, I think the costumes are probably the best on the Wheelers. You started kind of talking about it before, um, but uh, the detail on them. Is what is the most amazing to me. You could tell these are really quality costumes made by hand, and I like each of them are so different. To put that much detail, so much different detail, mm-hmm. specified special detail, into so many different characters is something that is astounding to me. And today, you know what it would be?
1: CGI. Even Mombi's costume. It's beautiful. Yeah. For as much as I turn my head away and don't listen and don't look. Uh, yeah, it's amazing that, that where she's playing the harp and she's got that cape with all of the spires sticking out of it. It's it's really amazing. And I think what is so well done, too, is that all of the costumes are given a timeless feel as far as Oz goes. Like, I, I know there was some dispute over the ruby slippers because of the rights, but I feel like all of the like the Wheelers and Mombi's costume and even the Ozian's clothes, once they're turned back from stone, you could have seen those in the original version or here. So I think that was really impressive how they kept that true. To the original piece And I think
0: the Gnome King His costume and his makeup are outstanding And I think that's It's a little weird when you get This diabolical character And he's wearing the ruby slippers I think it's unintentionally very funny But his makeup I think is very much Underappreciated when you think about Some of the all time great makeup In the history of cinema
1: Right and that's where it's such a shame Like we're talking about how Stuck the scarecrow and Jack pumpkin head look where they did eventually give him the full treatment. Like at first it is a, you know, you go from claymation to a bigger mask and then they just enhance his own features. The more, the more of the souls that he has sucked into his collection, the more human he gets. Um, and I'm glad that they finally, you know, peeled enough layers away where we just get to see him in the full makeup, even though it's not for very long. Um, speaking of the claymation though, um, that's something I go back and forth with. Um, I think it was an interesting choice. I'm wondering if that was a budgetary choice. Um, because you know, they bothered to destroy the whole set of his ornament collection, but then you've got, I think the stop motion rocks work throughout the entire film, but the clay at the end—I kind of feel like it's as weak as the egg.
0: Yeah, um, I thought it started off okay. By the time we got to the end of it, it was really kind of rough and really wonky. Um, not the—I mean—not the best we've ever seen. Probably not the worst but there was room for improvement there for sure.
1: So why don't we let you go first for once? What is your final synopsis of this film?
0: So here's the thing. I think any time you try to do a sequel for The Wizard of Oz, you automatically fail. Not because you don't have the wherewithal to make a great sequel to The Wizard of Oz, but how, how, do, you, how, do, you even, how do you even try how to even try? Um, it's such a flawless movie. It's such a timeless and beloved film that I don't think it's a movie that needs a sequel. In spite of the fact that there is a lot of um, there is a lot of source material, um, I don't think it's necessary. However, they continue to try, um, and I do like this movie. Um, is it the best sequel we've ever had? No, but it's because you're comparing it to what. Many people think, and and it would be hard to argue with them, that the original is the greatest movie ever made. So why would you even try to make a sequel to the greatest movie ever made? Um, They tried this. It didn't work. They tried Oz, the Great and Powerful, um, TBD. We haven't discussed it yet, um, but as I remember, you and I had two very different opinions of it. So when you think about the amount of time between those two movies, it's clear that they don't jump into sequels for this franchise very often. Um, I don't think they should jump into it again, but it's clear they don't do it often. And um, as much as I like this movie, I do, it's, it's sort of just unnecessary. And compared to the original, it falls flat. And it's kind of unfair, but it's only because you're comparing it to the original. Otherwise, this movie is perfectly fine.
1: I do agree with you in that regard. I feel like I would think very differently about it if I was not raised on it. I think that if I stumbled across this on Disney Plus now, I would be like, what? How dare you try to make an Oz sequel? Um, So I think part of my affinity for it comes from just having grown up on it and having it be just more Oz content really throughout my childhood I think I definitely appreciate it more when I don't think about it as a sequel and I just think of it as another adaptation but regardless I still love this movie I love it for all of the amazing sets and costumes and music like we talked about Um, I love it for it being an extension of Oz and getting to go back to that world because I think even though they set Dorothy back as far as being a kid, I feel like our journey in Oz picks up right where it left off. And I think just for the fact that I've said it a million times, I am 30 years later fascinated and terrified by it. And the fact that it still has that much power over me, I think, speaks to it standing the test of time. So if you don't think about it in the Wizard of Oz context, if you've removed the sequel from your head, I think it definitely holds up. And I will take this over a modern day CGI remake any day of the week. I will certainly take this trippy version over anything that Tim Burton would do with it.
0: Absolutely. And we're interested to know what you have to say. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us Radio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first a quick break.
1: If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Ohlani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com
0: News this week we got a teaser trailer for Raya and the Last Dragon. Um, I mean, it looks cool. I like the music. It's a teaser trailer so they only so show you, show you so much. Um, but... It, it should be fun. You know, hopefully it is released, uh, you know, as per their latest timeline. Hopefully the movie does come out uh, when they're aiming to have it out. Um, and it doesn't get pushed back again. But, oh, hey, you know, it's, it's a Disney animated feature. You know I'm going to go see it.
1: I was very intrigued when they released the first artwork from it where they just had the rain dripping from her hat and you just see this little subtle smile on her face and I thought that that image told so much about the story uh I feel like it told more than the teaser does actually because the teaser to me just kind of feels like Moana where it's a strong-willed girl who needs to learn from her ancestors to deal with the present? So, I'm hoping by the time we get an actual trailer for it, we're going to see a little bit more.
0: But as always, we want to know what you have to say about the trailer. Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Don't forget, you guys can also follow us on that social media as well as on TikTok at Monoreal Radio. And uh, be sure to check out monorealradio.com where you have links to every episode of the show thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week, don't forget you can also listen to us on your podcast platform of choice rate, review, and subscribe it's always very much appreciated guys, thank you so much as always, for Jackie, I'm Sean, have a magical week everyone on behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us, we'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of